have a really entrepreneurial approach to my work. I'm very much like, what's the next thing that I'm going to work on? I'm always pushing forward. If you are interested in something, you got to seek it out. I never am satisfied with the sort of like, oh, I'm just going to do this. I'm always like, well, what's next? Hey, all you intrepid architects out there. If you believe design can change the world, then you've found your humans here on this show, Architecting. My name is Angela Mazzi, and I'm an architect and career coach who's figured out how to live my passion while claiming a successful architecture career and lifestyle. This show is about the architect as a person and will help you bypass all the status quo traps in our profession while teaching you how to make an impact in your career. We need to stand in our power as architects and use our skills to make great places. If you're with me, let's get architecting. Wow, after just one episode, we're getting great comments. Things like, thank you for putting this out there. I'm your audience. And it's like you're in my head. You're speaking directly to me. I couldn't be more grateful. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Architecting Podcast. Today, we are with my friend, Dee Nicholas, who is the Director of MS Design Research and an Assistant Professor at Drexel University's Westfall College of Media Arts and Design. Um, She's also the Coordinator of the Sustainability in the Built Environment minor. I really wanted to have her on because she's a registered architect, artist, and an interior designer. So her work really involves research, design, and advocacy. And I thought that was a really interesting thing for us to be talking about as we think about how we can make a difference as architects. So welcome, Dee. Thank you. Thank you for being on. For having me. Wanted to start, you know, we go way back, we went to architecture school at Carnegie Mellon together and kind of have you think about where you were when you first decided you might want to be an architect and then how you got to doing all the really exciting stuff that you're doing today. Well, that's that's like such a great question. I think everybody, um, I didn't really have a choice on the, on the being an architect front. My dad is an architect and What's really interesting is my dad's actually, you probably know this, but my dad's Egyptian and he always, all my life told me he was an architect and he had a construction management firm. So he came to America, started working for architects, had this firm, had his own business. I found out recently that he was not an architect. He's an architectural engineer. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. And when I was studying for my registration exam, he was really good at helping me with the structural part. Like he basically helped me so much. And then when I practice, I practice, I would call him when I had structural questions because he's really, really good with structures. And it was just really interesting because it just made so much sense. And I was like, oh, but I never really had a choice. Like I have always been creative. I was creative as a child and it was always like, oh, well, well, you're going to go to architecture school. You're creative. And I, I'm an architect. You're going to be an architect. Okay. I'll be an architect. So um, I didn't really know what that meant, but I, when I got to Carnegie Mellon and I, I did go to Carnegie Mellon for, um, for pre-college, but I didn't go for pre-college architecture. Thank goodness. Because I was, 
not so great in high school. I was not well behaved, let's put it that way. So um, luckily I got into Carnegie Mellon and I arrived for freshman year and I realized it was the exact right thing for me to be studying and I loved it. And so it was just a life-changing experience for me to be there uh, studying architecture. And I learned so much that I think it really is the reason why I work the way that I do and why I went on to get an MFA, why I went on to become a certified interior designer, registered architect. And now I'm actually in a PhD program, um, getting a social science PhD. Wow. Wow. It's because of our experience where we sort of were encouraged to always seek the answer, always think about the human piece, always push forward with experimentation. It was a very, very experimental environment that we were in. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And it really focused on the impact of creating an environment, which is what I really loved. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons I teach because I was so impacted by it that I love that sort of blossoming that happened to me when I was in school, that consciousness that came about. And I also loved the fact that I could do it, that I was able to become an architect. And I just want to, I want to help other people do that. Even though I don't teach architecture right now, I did teach architecture and then interior design. And now I teach design research, but I just love that, that sense of helping people build that narrative of who they are in their trajectory of their career and their lives. So. Yeah. And it's such a diverse profession, right? A lot of people think being an architect means you own your own firm and you just design anything and everything. And it's yeah. really not like that at all. No. And I think um, for me, it's actually, architecture is actually less how I define myself now. I just I define myself more as a designer and a social science researcher. And for me, the, the name architect is, is less, I am a registered architect, but it's, it does not define who I am as much. And I think that's partially because it hasn't always been the most equitable area of my life. I haven't always felt embraced by the architecture world. In fact, the opposite. So even though I do have AIA and I am a registered architect, it's not always a place for me. And it, when I was younger, it really didn't feel like a place for mm-hmm. me. So I think the profession's changing and that's not the case for people who are graduating as much now, but in my early career, I definitely did not have a lot of, uh, a lot of mentorship as a young female architect. Did have a lot of mentorship, however, as a scholar and a, a lot of mentorship as an interior designer and a researcher, lots of mentorship there and lots of mentorship as a professor. So that's good. Very cool. So what made you want to get into interior design also? Well, when you move, and I'm sure you experienced this because we were talking before, and I know you live in a like a sort of urban type area, but when you move to a city like Philadelphia, and although I don't live in Philadelphia right now, I did live in Philadelphia for like 17 years. Most of the work that you do as a practitioner is interior. So I moved to Philadelphia and I was doing almost all interior renovation and I wasn't practicing interiors so much because that is a specific practice that many architects think they're doing, but they're not actually doing. They're actually doing architecture on the interior, but I wasn't doing interiors practice so much. But the more I did interior architecture, I started to get into working in the interior space and it slowly became something that I got more and more interested in. And then I started teaching interiors and I started actually working for interior designers. And it just was such a great fit. It's such a layered practice in terms of space, color, the way that you 
the way that you create space. And it is a research oriented practice in a way that's different than architecture because it's very much about the scale of the person because it is the interior space. Mm -hmm. There's something about it that really appealed to me. And I'm not saying no architects do it. I'm just saying that kind of a gray area for some. And so what I love about interiors is that there's a sort of human centered piece to it that I, that my practice as an architecture person didn't have as much. And I really like that. Yeah. A lot of times when you think about what people react to and resonate with in a space, it is the interiors, the quality of the lighting and the textures of the materials much more than it is what we would strictly define as architecture. Yeah. And I think the way professional practice is now is that a lot of architects have to spend so much time on the skin and the structure, the siding, that the interior becomes, it's almost beings that are inner parts of a body, right? And so I just sort of gravitated towards the interior side. Large firms that I would work in, I would always be on the interior side. And it just slowly, it was a really slow process. And then when I had my own firm, I did end up doing a lot of storefront work, but I also ended up doing a lot of residential interior stuff, but still wasn't doing a hundred percent soup to nuts interiors until I went and worked in an interiors firm for a couple of years. That was great. So how did you go from there to all of this really amazing advocacy stuff and working with Drexel and, and these programs that you've helped to create there? So I was also at the same time that I was practicing, I was doing small design build projects with students and I was actually teaching at another school and I had started a research practice that was very much about making and very much about the sort of like human scale. And it slowly evolved to be about health. And then it started to be about, I've always been the person that sort of taught around materials and making And that slowly evolved into a collaborative practice uh, and a collaborative process of thinking about like the sort of health oriented pieces within the space. So it was a really long, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years and I graduated from school in the early 90s. So it's been a long evolution. I would say my lab is almost 10 years old and I collaborate with an epidemiologist and a microbiologist. And that's the last eight years that I've been collaborating with them. So it's just been a really long evolution. Luckily, I came to Drexel in 2010. And that was a point when the university was really like a wide open field. And I have a really entrepreneurial approach to my work. I'm very much like, what's the next thing? that I'm going to work on. I'm always pushing forward. I think that's something else that Carnegie Mellon gives you is it, it gives you this feeling of like, if you are interested in something, you got to seek it out. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why you're doing your work with salutogenesis. I think that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing in like health and home and the sort of collaborative work that I do. I never am satisfied with the sort of like, oh, I'm just going to do this. I'm always like, well, what's next? What's next? And so when I got to Drexel in 2010, I was like, well, what, this is a really interesting place. And who can I cross paths with that's going to be interesting? And oh my goodness, Drexel is an amazing environment. Like I kept crossing paths with these like really fascinating people. And they were like, oh, you're interested in that. I'm interested in this. And we just started having these conversations and it just snowballed into these projects. And then we started to get funding. And so it was really just a slow evolution. And so now I have projects that are about domesticity, home, and um, the housing pipeline. And we have created five foundational principles that we work from. We publish around this work, have community care providers that we work with, and we basically interrogate the concepts around um, health and home basically using five foundational principles. And it's really been very interesting and I'm sure it's going to keep changing. One of the things that we're starting to get more involved in because now we've been working together for so long is advanced manufacturing. So we're starting to think about, because we have patent pending 
uh, myself and one of my collaborators have uh, two patent pendings on one of our units and one of the things we've been designing and we are like, well, this is an advanced manufacturing project and I'm starting to work with some biomedical engineering professors on some other stuff with some other design professors. And so advanced manufacturing is starting to be something that I'm getting interested in as well. And I have considerable experience in how that technology works because of my design research program that I helped write and now that I run. Well, I I just love how this thread continues for you. And one thing leads to another leads to another, but what seems to be the common denominator is that you're never content to just stay where you are. You're always saying, how else can I grow? How else can I evolve? And it's kind of led you to this point where you're not just serving the need of a client in the moment, but you're starting to say, how can architecture change the world? Yeah, I really feel that way. I also think one of the things that's really important to me is how can early career designers be in the world in in a good way? How can that be equitable? If not if some of us are not safe then then none of us are safe. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And so if families that live near me feel like their homes are not safe, then my home is not safe. It doesn't matter if my neighborhood is different than than their neighborhood if I you know, my property value is different than there's whatever. My home's not safe. If they don't feel safe, I don't feel safe. So I think this idea that community is much more than just like who lives near you, I think is super, it's, I think it's actually one of the ideas of the next part of our, of our culture. I think it hasn't quite gotten here for some folks, <laughs> but for some of us where they're already. And so I think we got to keep moving forward with that. And I think that's in Philly, that's like a big thing is it's not designing for, it's designing with, and it's right. not it's not imposing yourself on, it's being ready to serve. And so in my social science work, there's a concept that I've learned about a lot about called servant leadership, where you're leading as a servant. So you're not actually leading, you're facilitating and helping, creating the space for a community to go where they need to go. I take that to heart. It's really something I do in my architecture and design work. And so I think it's a really important concept for me. Yeah, no, it is It is very, very powerful. When I lived in Phoenix, I did a lot of work with community development corporations. And I realized that nobody knows the needs of a community better than the people that live there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't involve them, if they don't buy into the solution, if they're not part of it, they opt out. It doesn't work. Yeah. And that's carried through even to my work on projects because the process is the key to tell you what the problem is you need to solve. And if you don't have the right process and the research behind it, you're solving the wrong problem. Absolutely. And I also think that like, you know, many of the communities of need that are located within like the sort of area that I work in, they don't want to be researched anymore. They've been researched and they don't, that's not their job to be researched. And I agree with them completely. It's not their job to be part of my research study. And I totally agree. And it's not, I, who am I as a person to come in and say, can I talk to you about your lived experience? That's not, how am I so privileged that that's my right? What needs to happen is there needs to be a shared transfer and exchange of knowledge that occurs that creates value for that community in some way. And so that's actually the kind of advocacy that my lab focuses on, but we also work to create solutions within environments that have been impoverished through policy as well. So for instance, if you think about like a housing shelter, 
to homeless shelter. You know, there's a way that shelters have been run that is, it's a good, it's a good way because they're able to house people, but it, it hasn't necessarily served everybody uh, perfectly well. And it's called housing first. And so the, and maybe you know about it. So the idea is that if somebody's homeless, the focus is, is getting them into housing as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. which on the face of it sounds great, but how it actually builds in skill building for the people who need to get into housing is less clear. And it creates actually a pipeline towards housing that lacks some things. It, it, and it's not the care provider's fault. They are amazing and they are doing the work they need to do, but they are unable to incentivize some of the things they need to incentivize. So we work within that space and, and try to sort of help where we can or study what we can within that space. And this is not to be critical of the policy or the people who are implementing it. It's our society that really lacks that ability to be subtle or connective. So when we implement a policy, it's not a one size fits all. We're, we're human beings. We're not widgets, right? And so policy doesn't always work. And so that's some of the work that we do is within that space. Um, we have a project called the Better Bunk. That's actually, it's a bag that unfolds and creates a privacy screen within group within cool. group sleeping spaces where there's like five families in one room and there's no privacy, there's no security. And, it, you know, so moms coming into this space will be given this bag and they will be able to unfurl it and hang it on the bunk. And it will, gives them uh, more private space. And it also gives them a way to organize their stuff because oftentimes the stuff is less than organized at that point in their life. And so it's research oriented, driven by in-place empirical studies that we've done but it's also about privacy, security, and self-efficacy, which are three of our foundational principles. love how you're kind of taking this idea of constructing an environment, which is what architects do, to a very micro scale and saying that ability to make and define space for yourself is such a key human need. And it's sort of like Maslow's pyramid. If we can't satisfy these basic needs, someone cannot make decisions about how to set up utilities or how to get a job or the higher level kinds of problem solving. Absolutely. You know, I, there's a couple places where this comes from in my work. So one thing is that I've had people in my family who are, while not homeless, have suffered from things like dual diagnoses. And I've watched them try to get back into a society without any safety net, because our society has very little safety net. And I've watched how they you know, they lose their birth certificate, their paperwork is all rumpled, they can't like keep track of stuff. So how if you're a mom with kids, and you're in a shelter, how do you even keep track of the paperwork? Like, that's hard for anybody, Mm -hmm. let alone if you're you just are, are fleeing your home for some reason. So there's that piece. There's for me, the piece of like having watched it up close with family members, and then wanting to maybe make a difference somehow in a space with folks where I I'm actually, you know, not related to them, but I have some understanding of that situation. And then there's also the idea that I don't feel that I can design something for people who are experiencing this. So, you know, we got the idea via going in and sort of working with the care provider and engaging with the moms But then, you know, we're designing it with the mom. So we're going to take it back in. They're going to tell us what works, what doesn't work. We're going to design it again. So it's an informed design cycle. We're not designing it for them. We're designing it with them. If we take it in there again and they're like, well, we, you know, we seem like it would work, but now everybody's fighting over it and we think it's not a good idea, then we'll pivot. There'll be a pivot, right? It actually started out as a renovation of the bunks. It actually started out as a a bunk retrofit. And we realized through working with the care provider that 
nobody's spending money on bunk retrofits in homeless mm-hmm. shelters are not going to spend money on bunk retrofits. In fact, they're not even going to spend money on bunks if they can avoid it because they don't have the money and that is not their fault. Again, this is not about casting blame or saying somebody isn't doing something. It's just not how they're funded. So I think there's just this whole thing of like, you have to work within the system. And I love this idea of making architecture a product. I was just reading an article about this that was in Architecture Magazine the other day. And when we think about even residential architecture, it's very expensive. It's not something the average person, certainly not something a low income or homeless person can access. So they're just kind of adapting to found spaces. And when you can change that paradigm and make it a product, you suddenly make it accessible to a whole group of people that never felt the power of design before. And that that's really exciting. Yeah. And I know, I think you and I were not taught that that architecture is elitist. Like we were not taught that we were not taught that architecture was only for the wealthy. Like that wasn't part of our education. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that being part of my education. I don't remember it being part of what our professors were teaching us. In fact, the opposite. I remember our professors saying architecture is about as much for as many people as possible. And so that was one thing that was really important to me coming out of school. And it was actually one of the things about being a practicing architect that I found a practicing residential architect that I found really hard because I lived overseas as a child and lived in places where people had nothing and watched people do a lot with nothing. And so for me, it's, I found it very disheartening when I graduated that most of my practice was really for those with the most. And we never got to the practice for those who I felt like really deserved it or needed it. And so that was one of the reasons why I started doing more and more research and less and less sort of like conventional practice. Cause I feel like through my research practice, even though it's at a small scale, it might be scalable across a larger universe. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that you kind of think about when you start to do like product as architecture or the idea of like small intervention as larger intervention, right? Um, So we're just about to apply for some funding for the better bunk. We're hoping to propagate it across the country. So, okay, it's a bag, but if it happens in a thousand shelters, then it's helping a lot. So that's, that's one, that's one project. That's not the patent pending project. I have another project that's got two patents. We're hoping the better bunk will be an open source project because that's the, the goal of that project. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I think one of the things too, for me is this idea of, and some of the concepts that I now work around, it's funny because I've never really been a super religious person, but they are almost like spiritual in their nature. And another concept that I've become very interested in is the concept of radical hospitality, which is actually something that is passed down from, it's got a religious perspective, which is a radical welcome or making someone feel so welcome and so comfortable that their space is safe and that they can unburden themselves. And so for me, that's not a religious thing. For me, that should be baseline. For me, I feel like why is some, who's someone who's homeless should be made to feel so comfortable more than someone who has a home in some ways. And so I feel like that that until our society is able to flip that switch, we're always going to have these issues until we're able to make those with the least feel like they have the most, we're always going to have these problems. And so that's actually at the core of my work. And that's at the core of my interest in, in health and well-being. And I feel like for me, the definition of health is really that definition of well-being. And that definition of well-being is about security 
privacy and the other, I can tell you the five foundational principles we've developed. There's privacy, security, a sense of self-efficacy through creative engagement, access to green space and access to fresh food. So those are the five foundational principles and they're not rocket science, but they emerged from our practice. And so those are the five things that just every time we did a research project, we would operate around them. They would just be the things. It's always those five things. So they just became our five foundational principles. And so they're most easily packaged that way. And they become the things that we research and the things that we work with. Well, that's awesome. And anyone who knows you knows what a force of nature you are. And (laughs) we can hear how totally passionate you are about this and how it has really been an evolution for you, but it shaped your career and brought you to where you are now. So I wanted to chat with you a little bit about what do you do when you encounter adversity or obstacles or politics on campus or with right, clients right. or whatever, and how do you stay true to your purpose and keep going? I'm lucky for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm a, I'm definitely a third culture kid. So I lived overseas. I'm the child of immigrants. I saw a lot as a child and experienced a lot as a child. So I've been in a lot of different situations. I experienced prejudice as a child, not the same as somebody who's African-American or black, like no, but definitely a lot of situations where I was an outsider and I was treated differently. So I understand I have that perspective. So that really helps me to understand how someone might feel that they are not being treated correctly in a situation. I always try to look at it that way when I'm in a situation where someone's unhappy or something doesn't seem right to try and understand their perspective. I don't like to call it empathy because I think empathy limits and empathy is sometimes can sound like you're being selfish. Like it's about me. What if I was this? And that's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. What I mean is to actually try to understand the other person's perspective. I think also Egyptians, we like to negotiate. I love to negotiate. So I may not always be good at it, but I love to find middle ground and common ground. And I feel like that might just be genetic. And I'm sorry to any other Mina people, (laughs) any other Middle Eastern, North African folk who are listening to this and are like, you are what? But I really feel like it's, it's part of who I am. I love to go buy car, a, a car. I always get a good deal. I can't help it. It's just who I am. So I don't, it's probably how I was raised. It's probably more nurture than nature, but I feel like I've been lucky enough to have all of those perspectives. So I have an entrepreneurial nature and I try to have a sense of humor about stuff, but you have to be careful when you're having a sense of humor because you don't want to um, insult people. So you have to be careful that your sense of humor is not about your differences or anything like that. So I really just try to be gentle and I try to give care when I can. That's how I negotiate differences, which I think is what your question was. And I I love that idea of the negotiation because it's about getting to yes, instead of hearing no and shutting down or becoming defensive. Yeah. That's one thing that practice has actually taught me. I mean, who other than a female architect on a job site with a male engineer, two other male architects and four male uh, contractors is going to be good at negotiation? Who else? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's the re- it was the reality mm-hmm. of my practice. And I love guys. I don't have anything against guys. And you might have to cut this, but I'm just saying, like, I learned it from being a practicing architect, right? It was part of the reality of being an architect as a female in the 90s was that you had to be able to gently and graciously negotiate in tense situations. It's not like that anymore. Now there's lots of different types and you know, genders and all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. But when I started as an architect, it was tough. 
to be a female architect and you as well. I know. Um, I'll just say it. No, it, it is definitely interesting. And I also love that you have kind of taken a stand for the and, right? So you're not just saying I'm an architect and this is what I do and I'm a martyr for everything else. You still very much are creative artists, constantly producing new work, having shows. You're publishing papers and delivering presentations at conferences. You're a wife, you're a mom. So how do you balance all that and handle the overwhelm, but still feel like you're staying true to living the life you want to live. I would say that I'm very lucky that I have a really great partner who allows my career definitely take center stage. And I would also say that I just accept that I'm going to be the mom that I am. I don't pack lunches. I don't drive people to school. My husband does that. I'm the main breadwinner for the family and I have always been pretty much the main breadwinner for the family. I'm lucky that I have such a supportive spouse. I'm so lucky and he's wonderful and I would be able to do what I do without him. But, you know, I just have had to accept that I'm the mom that I am and I'm a different kind of mom. And my kids used to always say, like my daughter used to always say, yeah, you're not like the other moms. And you know, I know I'm not, but I would, I also, I am me. <laughs> so that's who I am. And I appreciate being called a force of nature. And I feel like, you know, I have friends who are in the same situation as me, such as yourself, who are the main breadwinners for their family. I mean, but like, I think it's more people than we think who are the women who are making the money. I think it's kind of not acknowledged that that's the story a lot of times, and especially in our generation, for some reason, I think there's a lot of stories that need to be told. And I feel like the older I get, the more willing I am to tell them, like the closer I get to 50, the more I'm like, Hey, <laughs> I'm not willing to be quiet about this anymore. Right, <laughs> you know, right. like my whole thing about being the female architect in the room, you know, I, I would probably 10 years ago, never have said that. And now I'm like, Hey, <laughs> that was hard. It's not like that anymore, but that was hard. You know, this, I think, happens with women no matter what, but women architects are very achievement oriented. So we really try to do it all and we almost take it on a good challenge. But what I've had to do much like you is say, who else can do this? I've started to recognize the way we have mythologized childhood and made it sacrosanct in a way that it wasn't when we were kids. We were a lot more independent. And the, the pressure is there to micromanage their lives. And if you buy into that, of course, it's overwhelming because you, you can't do it all. Don't want to judge anybody. You have to do what feels good for you because if you're not going to feel comfortable, you're not going to do your best work. But it's this pressure to be the great mom as society has defined it, not even necessarily as your kids might define it. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I do think everybody has to do what they're comfortable with. People have to feel comfortable in their own skins and in their own lives. But I also think that like, you don't always get to choose, you know, you don't get to choose what you're, what you're going to be doing always like, and so, you know, one of the things that I'm really invested in is the narrative of who I am and how I build that. I'm not as concerned with whether I'm an architect, an interior designer, right, researcher. I don't really care about those labels as much. And that might be because I'm further along in my career. And when you're early career, you care about those labels more. And then as you get further along, I mean, I'm incredibly lucky, but I'm also have worked incredibly hard. You know, I work 60, 70 hour weeks, as I'm sure you do. I have 14 hour days, 15, 16 hour days. I work all the time. So yeah. 
<laughs> that's why my that's why I have research papers. That's why I have a research group. That's why I'm lucky enough to have amazing students, lucky enough to have reconnected with you because I work at it. And so do you. And so I think it is hard work, but I also think it's like so rewarding. Yeah, if you but love it, it doesn't feel like work. You're like, well, what else would I do? <laughs> <laughs> and my motherhood has taken a hit because of it. And I acknowledge that. Would I be a better mom if I'd stayed home? Absolutely. Are my kids better off or worse off? I don't know. They've had a better dad. Does that make me better than a mom who stayed home? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like I think my mom, I have lots of mom friends who are like full-time moms and they're awesome. And I totally like, I'm like, I couldn't do what they do. And it's 10 times harder than what I do. It's so much, I think it's so much easier to work a 14 hour day than to be a full-time mom. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, some other, some other women might smack me for saying that, but I just think it's much harder to be a full-time mom. It's so much harder. And it's so unacknowledged. All that caring work is not acknowledged. It's unfair. You know, my, I have a friend who's a full-time mom. She, ha she has a five-year-old and a 13-year-old and she works so hard and she, none of her work is acknowledged. I work so hard and I get in a paper, you know, I get a paper in a mm -hmm, conference, mm -hmm. right? Not fair. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know, how are they going to turn out, right? I mean, I've always felt. They're all going to be fine. The best example I could ever give my kids is showing them that if you go for what you love and you work at your passions that you can make a difference in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I've always felt that's the most important thing I could teach them. Yeah. And that's a lot of why I've made the choices I've made is that I feel like we're here to live a purpose given our unique gifts and talents and ours is architecture. That's what we have to show our kids is you find what you love and you use that to make a difference and you Absolutely. live your purpose. And the thing that I would say too, is that like all our kids are going to be fine and they're all going to end up in therapy anyway. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's the nature, that's the nature, like they're maybe not therapy, but they're all going to end up with their own issues. They're all going to end up, you know, they're, we're humans. We're yeah. all humans. Yeah. So we're all going to end up with like, some things are good and some things are trouble. We're all going to have trouble. We're, that's the nature of life. And so it is what it is. The thing that I'm really feel good about is that the older my kids get, I'm still able to talk to them because they're not, they're just going into teenhood. So I'm still able to have conversations with them and they're so fun and I love it. So we'll see. I mean, we just at that point where like, you know, I can just see it's coming where they're going to be like, don't talk to me. You know, so you never know. I find that I have the best conversations with my son while he's playing video games because it's like just enough distraction and he doesn't have to look me in the eye. <laughs> And he tells me all his state. secrets. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fugue state. It used to be when you were in the car driving them and they would like tell you stuff. Now it's like the video games. Of the, yeah. But hey, it works, right? Yeah. yeah, it's awesome though. So I'm lucky. Before we conclude, I just had one last question. Is there any myth about architecture that you would like to debunk and just sort of say, don't buy into this? Well, not necessarily, but I do think that there is like, not so much a myth. I, well, I think there's some preconceived notions that, that people have about going into architecture, such as you have to be good at math. Mm, yeah, that's... Big myth, big myth. You don't have to be good at that. Like, I would never have survived the first year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was good at math, but it did, that wasn't why. But I think there's some things about how architecture works that used to be true that aren't true anymore. And I'm really happy to see that. So I think there's a lot more equity and there's a lot more consideration. I'm really excited about that. I love 
the research-driven approaches that I'm seeing like firms take. I think that's amazing. The architecture world that I speak about when I speak about my experience as a young architect doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's changed a lot and that makes me so happy. So architects that are listening that hear me say like, you know, it wasn't equitable, blah, blah. I'm not talking about architecture now. I'm talking about architecture in the nineties, right? And so I love the change that I see that's happening and that has happened. I'm not saying it's all rosy and perfect, but there's definitely 50% or more graduating from school are female now. And, you know, it's becoming more, yeah. much more diverse. I'd like yeah. it to be even more diverse, but it's definitely changing. Yeah. It was my biggest rude awakening because my class and you were a year behind your class we were 50 50 and when I started working it was like oh half the people here are not women that's interesting I had never noticed that kind of issue of you know gender or any of that in my life and now all of a sudden it was hitting me over the head and it was so strange And it took me a while to figure it out. So when I graduated, we were seven of 35. And then when I moved here, I was always the only woman for the first 10 years of my career. And not only that, it took me a while to figure it out. It took me like five years to figure that out. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. Like how, (laughs) cause I was like, you know, 23, like, you know, (laughs) so who knows, but it worked out. Okay. But it was, it, and I'm, maybe it's still like that for some folks, but I don't think so. I think it's changed a lot. And I have lots of, I work with people and I know people who are uh, older than me who ran firms who, whose firms weren't like that. So I think it just was the firms that I was working in and the places that I was and, you know, the things that I did. I, again, I can only talk about my experience. I can't, I'm not making sweeping generalizations about all architecture. Um, I want to be very clear to say that because I don't want people to think that I'm knocking every piece of everything. But yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It really is the career you make it. It is in a lot lot of ways. What do you specialize in? How far do you go? Do you work in private practice or do you teach or work for a city or work for an institution as their architect? There's just so many different ways that you can take it as a career. What was really mind-blowing was I went back to Carnegie Mellon like two years ago, maybe three years ago, and I was on a panel with Steve Lee, who was our structure materials professor. Yes. He's, a, he's a great guy. I think he semi-remembered me. I mean, who knows? He's had millions of students at this point, but I was like so nervous to be on a panel with Steve Lee. Like I was like, oh, <laughs> it was crazy, but it was really fun to go back and it looks so similar. We walked right into the building. I mean, it was amazing. I was like, it's still the same place. It was really cool. Yeah. I mean, a lot more computers around, yeah. but other than that, very similar feeling. So yeah. One of, one of my colleagues at GBBN in our Pittsburgh office teaches at Carnegie Mellon. So oh, it's kind yeah. of, kind of interesting to hear his take on things and what's going on there. I mean, I think one of the reasons I love Drexel so much is because there's something about the like push and the kind of integrative nature. There's a very like, there's a technology piece and there's a sort of research oriented piece at Drexel that really resonates with that training that I had at Carnegie Mellon. I think that's one of the reasons I like it so much because it's got that, you know, there's something similar. 
And, they, and they've let you, you know, similarly to how it was at Carnegie Mellon, they've let you say, I want to do this. Lots and they've given you the space and the resources to make it happen. Yeah. yeah, lots of exploration. It's been great. It's great to reconnect with you. I, I think you and I have been emailing and talking for a long time now. This is this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Architecting Podcast. It's this is really cool. exciting to hear your point of view. Yeah. And how you really built a career for yourself. Wow, wow, wow. I hope you could hear the power in Dee's story. How being aligned with her purpose, but not attached to what it might look like as a career, led her to do something she probably didn't have in mind back when we were in school together. But at the same time, if she could go back in time and tell herself what she was doing now, past Dee would probably be like, right on. She would just know that what she was doing in the future was right. And Dee is totally on purpose and a force of nature who is fearless about taking on challenges. So what can you take away from her story to up your own intrepid quotient? Number one, always ask what's next. Always. Number two, believe that you can take the next opportunity in front of you and go for it no matter what. Don't judge your own qualifications. And if you see a path open up, look for ways to solidify your credentials doing that thing. That's what a thought leader does. Finally, do not, do not, do not define what you do by anyone else's standard. Who says you can't be an architect, artist, researcher, social justice, crusader, polymath, whatever? Because I guarantee you, you are already wearing multiple hats. I hope you found this content valuable. And if you did, please know that we are all in this together. This is a movement to really inspire architects to stand in our power and make a difference. So please share this with someone else you know who you think could benefit from this message, who's also in need of the inspiration and the permission even to say, it's okay to dream big. And I would love it if you would also. DM me on Instagram with any ideas for future shows or just share your thoughts. Please also leave comments on the podcast. When you leave comments, that helps other architects who are looking for content to find this show and helps our community to grow and be stronger. So until next time, I love you. Stay inspired. Thanks for being part of this episode of Architecting. If you enjoyed the show, join our community on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn to keep up with what's in the show pipeline, including a behind-the-scenes look at my architecture lifestyle. Feel free to share your content ideas. Love to hear your feedback. You can also visit architectingpodcast.com to download free career content and learn about my classes, book, and coaching programs. Until next time, stay inspired.